This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back, gentle listeners. This is Stories to Keep You Up at Night. I'm Marco Palmieri. And I'm Nicole Otto. And we're delighted to have you back for not one, but two unsettling stories. The first is a slowly building horror story. While a journalist's husband gradually succumbs to dementia, she investigates the pastor he follows and makes a very disturbing discovery. We're excited to present Fugue State, written by Stephen Barnes and Nana Reeve Dew and voiced by Shana Small. Shit. Charlotte Berry whispered as her sleeping mind cleared, and she heard Arthur fumbling in the bathroom cabinet. She saw his reflection in the mirror, salt and pepper hair, and a small bald spot as he hunched over, a medicine bottle close to his face. She wanted to pretend he only needed reading glasses. But it was far worse than that. Ace, he said, sounding out the label. Damn. Men. Acetaminophen. She wanted to scream the word at him. He often woke with a headache after a couple of glasses of wine at dinner, and Tylenol was his go-to remedy. She'd saved a few dollars by buying a generic brand with a green label, and now he was struggling. They had never had children, but he seemed like her five-year-old niece now, needing special handling at every turn. Charlotte's stomach clenched. Usually she could at least get past breakfast sometimes even dinner, before it was so obvious that he was all wrong. He wasn't the man she'd married, didn't even begin to cover it. That's the Tylenol, hon, she called to him. He only grunted. She heard the faucet squeak, a rush of water as he cupped his hand to drink. He came out and only glanced at her, no longer embarrassed like he'd been in the beginning. Lot of letters for aspirin he said, chuckling as he left the room to go downstairs. No shame, no bother. Not even 50 years old. Her former mentor at the Trib, and he was forgetting how to read. Forgetting more than that. Charlotte felt heavy and sore, a clear sign she had slept poorly. Did she sleep at all anymore? Or did she just lie like a slap beside him each night, wondering who he was becoming? Charlotte rolled out of bed, did some stretching and yawning, and wandered into the bathroom, looking at herself in the mirror as she splashed water in her face. She still looked enough like actress Gabrielle Union to earn double takes in a dim room, but she didn't like the fatigue sagging her eyes. Ice cubes and cucumbers hadn't helped. 
When she finally made it into the kitchen, Arthur was already at the table. For a moment, her mood lightened. The Atlanta Star newspaper, once their shared work home, was open on the table before him. Trying the crossword puzzle today? She tried to sound perky, but he frowned at her. He knew her routine, forcing him to face it at least once a day, trying to make him rethink his refusal to see a doctor or seek treatment. When she'd met him, he could finish the New York Times Sunday crossword puzzle in the time it took her to figure out five or six words at best. Playing Scrabble against him had been mostly an exercise in humiliation. She wanted him to care, but his eyes were dull and unbothered. Then what are you doing? She struggled once again to keep from screaming. Reading the funnies, Arthur said. But you see, that Johnny Hart cracks me up. She felt her stomach tighten. Cavemen and dinosaurs, coexisting, fun. Her smile went no further than her lips. She knew the strip, and Arthur was the one who told her he would never give it another glance after he learned the cartoonist was a young Earther. Now he liked it again, and he was reading the comics where he used to read the political pages, Hell, he used to write them. She wondered what the Jesuit brothers who schooled him would think about this new development. Arthur chuckled and laughed at the childish line drawings, and she wished their problems were confined to the bedroom or the breakfast table. She couldn't break the silence with the radio broadcast or morning news. The last time she turned on the news, he had screamed at her with so much rage during their argument that spittle had flown from his mouth. Why don't you listen? But she didn't, wouldn't, couldn't. When she first took the job from the reverend, she thought he was just playing along with the reverend's crazy ideas for a paycheck. But it was more than that. Just as Arthur had been forced to retire from his job as the paper's senior political writer, Charlotte felt pushed toward retirement too. How could she keep writing her relationships column for the paper if her husband had become a literal stranger? She'd written all about it. The column was right in front of him. But he hadn't even noticed. Of course. I miss you, she whispered. He had the same smile, at least. He winked at her. I'm here, kiddo. Charlotte cried on the way to the office but she dried her eyes before she parked and left the lot. The tension in her stomach and chest began to ease as she walked through the newspaper office's glass double doors. Work felt more like home these days. The first eyes she looked for were Miller's, the news editor. He was a big red-faced man with thinning silver hair and had been at the paper since the 70s, even before Arthur. A little personal yesterday, wasn't it? Miller asked. Her column was in his hands. I wasn't so good at hiding things, was I? She hadn't written all of what she was feeling. She didn't dare. But she'd focused her column on couples who were beginning to feel hopeless. Most of her columns had a helpful conclusion with a list of counseling resources. But she'd ended yesterday's column by writing, Learning how to fight for your relationship is as important as knowing when it's time to let go. So odd to give her co-workers and readers insights her husband did not share. Arthur wasn't mad, 
Charlotte sighed. He doesn't read my column anymore. Doesn't read much of anything anymore except the Bible. Miller knew. She'd been confiding in him since Arthur first began blowing his stories at work, and Miller had helped him secure a solid severance package. In truth, Miller knew more than he should. More than Arthur would like, certainly. Or would Arthur even care? As a good Baptist girl, I almost feel guilty for being bothered by his new love affair with the Bible. I don't even think he's reading it. He's just staring at the drawings. This reverend he's fallen in with, I can't understand it. Arthur is a high-level political advisor who knows better. I thought he'd laugh this guy off once he met him. The reverend's quotes had first begun appearing in social media, and his posts were deranged. Not just fire and brimstone, but blood and burning, supposedly as metaphors. Not to mention the crazy stories about group faith healings, please. When Arthur said he'd agreed to work with him as an advisor, Charlotte had been shocked. Arthur had assured her the partnership was his notion of change from within, that it was better to have a seat at the table, but now Arthur had swallowed the meal. You met the good Rev? Miller asked her. No, I almost want to, just to try to see why. Miller considered, closing her column's newspaper page. I heard a quote once from one of Hitler's generals, something about how when he read De Fira's writing, it was raving. But when the guy said the same shit in person, Somehow he believed him. Maybe it's like that. It has to be. Then maybe you don't want to meet him. Charlotte took an early lunch, her mind split between the daily violence and the news, and whether she should twist another event from her personal life to fit her column. But what? The logical progression from her last column was five signs your relationship is over, but she was afraid to see it in writing. To avoid chat with co-workers, she slipped into Art's delicatessen down the street. Every sandwich a work of art. She was nibbling on a pickle from her usual barbecued beef sandwich when the man sat down. The big stranger was pale, freckled, and balding with pale brown hair, so large that she glanced to see if the manager or girl at the register had noticed him sit with her. He had small, bright, watery eyes. She halfway expected him to pull out a gun like the guy who shot Bruce Willis in the sixth sense. Incidents like it seemed to happen every day. Are you Charlotte Berry, Charlotte's Web? He sounded hushed, urgent. She was relieved he wasn't a random loon, but she let out an involuntary sigh. Damn, another fan. She had taken her photo off the masthead for just that reason. Sorry, I'm eating. He went on as if she hadn't spoken, if she were a hologram. I read you, your column. I need to speak to you. She exaggerated her politeness with a smile in case he was armed. I'm sorry, I really don't. He bore in. I'm Polly. He said as if that was supposed to mean something to her, like your long lost cousin, remember? Polly Shore, like the actor. A ghastly smile fluttered and died on his lips. 
You did a column about political differences tearing marriages apart, and I know a couple of things. You don't like Reverend Pike, and your husband does. She stared, chewing slowly, wondering if she should be very afraid of this man instead of just a little afraid. She didn't answer, waiting for the rest. He leaned over to whisper a spray of hot breath. There's something bad coming. I don't know what it is. My mother raised me in his church, so I was part of Pike's inner circle before he got, before he became what he is. He has power. I've seen it. Under the table, she reached into her purse for her reporter's notebook. A pin was always stored in the wire spiral. She wrote, power. That much was true, even if he meant it in the loony way. Could he be a defector? What kind of power, she asked, testing his knowledge of Pike's history. He didn't always have it. Then, something happened. Remember the accident? Sure she did. A year ago, Pike's wife had died in that car wreck he barely survived. By the time the paramedics hauled Pike out of the river, his heart had stopped for almost seven minutes, doctors said. And even after they started it up, he was in a coma for another three months, constantly prayed over by a circle of his followers. After he woke up, the rumors had started. Tales of healings and precognition, finally leading to a much-mocked presidential aspiration. What about it? Charlotte said. It changed. Not the same. Not the same as anyone. Polly shook his head again with an odd looseness, as if it weren't screwed tightly to his neck. Listen to me. He's going to use tonight. Use it to create his national presence, and then it will be too late. Even if he was a defector, he wasn't a reliable source for an investigation. Her quiet lunch was spoiled. Bring on the entertainment. All right, Pauly Shore, like the actor. I'm listening. What exactly is going to happen? I don't know. I'm not in the inner circle. Not anymore. But I've been trying to talk to reporters, television people. No one will talk to me. And they're watching me. Charlotte had worked the news desk before she started her column, and she'd never had any luck with sources who said they were being watched. Usually, they only needed new meds. They? They know I'm talking and scared. Then why are you talking to me? A smile, both troubled and shy. I thought, you're a Lonely Hearts columnist, not political or editorial. I thought maybe they wouldn't be watching. Lonely hearts. She hadn't heard that phrase in a long time. But it fit all right. She'd had a more engaging conversation with this stranger than she'd had with Arthur in weeks. Maybe longer. And who are they? He lowered his voice. The golden ones. You'll see them. They wear gold braid on their uniforms at the events. They are the enforcers. He looked around, nervous. He might have looked like an actor, except for the sudden sweat on his forehead. What? She said. His nerve broke. I have to go, he said, and then, as if she'd begged him not to, 
I have to go. He handed her a cardboard rectangle. What is this? It's a ticket. He leaned across the table and suddenly was holding her wrists. His grip was strong. You have to see. You have to stop them. They feed on emotion. It's like a virus, a disease. You have to believe me. She was about to yell for security when he let her go and jumped from his seat to dart out the door. She watched him leave, noticing how her wrists flared from his tight grip. Her heart sped up. She'd basically just been assaulted in public. She stared after him as he retreated across the street, watching his hair blow in the breeze. She started writing a description, six foot two or three, 230 pounds. She heard a screech of tires outside and lifted her eyes in time to see two cars collide, crunching metal. But Polly was between the cars, the same hair blowing wildly. He'd been pinned. She thought it was an accident until the driver of the dark colored car, a woman with red hair, backed up so quickly that a motorcyclist had to dodge her. Stop that car, someone yelled just as the car lurched away a hit and run. Charlotte fumbled for her phone, heart pounding. It was worse than a hit and run. Her source had just told her he was in danger, and someone had. Charlotte dared a glance back out through the window, raising herself slightly in the booth. Polly Shore had crumpled to the asphalt in an unnatural position that looked very dead. Her source might have just been murdered before her eyes. Charlotte threw her money on the table and ran outside while she dialed. She saw several other people on their phones too, but she dutifully listed the cross streets to the operator. The name of the victim, the detached voice said. Sure, C-H-O-R-E, just hurry and send someone, she said and hung up. The lunchtime crowd had circled around Polly, so she excused her way in to be sure she hadn't only imagined his condition from a distance. Up close, he looked even worse, his misshapen head streaked in blood. But his eyes were blinking, he was conscious. Polly, she said. The sad-eyed crowd parted for her as if she were a friend. Polly's lips fluttered. He was trying to talk to her. I'm here, she said mostly to comfort him. It's okay. It wasn't okay. She leaned closer to him, regretting her dismissive thoughts and words in the diner. He had deserved more from her. But she didn't speak because he was trying too hard to make himself heard. She leaned close enough to smell his blood. Go, tonight, he managed to say, something terrible. And then he never said another word. Charlotte didn't have to check for a pulse to know that he was dead. She stood on the street until the ambulance came. The paramedics spent about 10 minutes trying to resuscitate him and then simply shoveled what was left of him off the ground and carried him away. Police wooden horses blocked off the bloody crosswalk. Reporters scribbled and photographers took pictures. She had retreated from the scene before the police arrived, disappeared around the corner and watched from a distance. Wasn't sure why. Perhaps because she'd been a news reporter once and reporters don't like being part of the story. She knew she could find her trip co-workers and share her notes. Miller probably had sent one of the new kids on the story, but documenting what had happened to Polly would not change it, would not fulfill his final wish, or maybe, just maybe, 
confer meaning to his death. Instead, she looked at the ticket he had given her and realized that she had to go. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Charlotte struggled through dinner with Arthur, neither of them speaking except to make polite requests for this or that on the table. She usually liked her lamb medium rare, but the blood-streaked meat made her remember Polly's injuries. A dozen times she wanted to ask, have you ever heard of a guy named Polly Shore? But Arthur was not her friend in this investigation. Arthur was Reverend Pike's man to the bone. She would have to go by herself. She offered Arthur a peck on the lips and asked when he'd come home. I'll be late, was all he said. As soon as she saw his car pulling out of the driveway, Charlotte called a cab. The Atlanta Stadium was only about 15 minutes away from their house in the Smyrna suburb of Atlanta. A giant obelisk wedged into a suburban mall and business district that already had been clogged with traffic for years. That night, headlights were a sea of glowing white as motorists vied for the parking entrances. Getting a ride home was sure to be a nightmare. As she climbed out of the cab and joined the streams heading inside, she marveled that tens of thousands of people were here to see the Reverend instead of the Braves. Charlotte adjusted her dark glasses and scarf over her hair, what Arthur used to call traveling incognito back when he made jokes with wordplay. She kept her head dipped low as she handed her ticket to an usher wearing a gold braid, almost expecting him to demand to know where she'd gotten it. Instead, he directed her to the nearest tunnel entrance, and she emerged inside a swarm of humanity. Charlotte was a football fan, so she wasn't new to the energy that swallowed her as the stadium crowd spread before her at her mid-level entrance. It was almost a palpable hum, pure energy sweeping them all beneath its spell. Usually, she could also smell the beer helping to fuel it, but not tonight. She didn't see a single beer vendor, but the crowd's excitement level was so furious that it could be the last quarter of a tied game. No, it was more than that. It felt like Michael and Prince were doing their first joint concert from the afterlife. Can you believe we're here? A woman in a nurse's frock said, clasping Charlotte's shoulders so tightly that she jumped. The woman's eyes were fevered. Charlotte remembered Polly's hands clamping her wrists and felt sick to her stomach. Nope, Charlotte said. I can't believe it all right. My boss said I couldn't take off early, but... The woman shrugged. I just walked out and left. Left the med cups sitting on the trays. And here I am. 
she giggled like a teenager. That's... Since the only word in Charlotte's head was frightening, she didn't finish aloud. Charlotte fought her usual instinct to pull out her reporter's notebook. She didn't want to bring attention to herself. She wasn't here on a story. Was she? She wanted to see, that was all. An opening speaker walked to the stage at the center of the stadium, her face larger than life on the jumbotrons. Reverend Lacey from nowhere, Kansas, and the crowd cheered in such a frenzy that Charlotte found herself clapping too, hoping for a taste of their excitement. It's great to finally see the truth, she bellowed in a voice that hardly needed a microphone. The cheering and applause seemed thick enough to walk on. The three opening speakers were from different parts of the country, but their message was the same, almost word for word, as if they'd only made minor edits on the same script. Bless Reverend Pike, bless the truth. A pox on unbelievers, blah, blah, blah. Charlotte stifled a yawn. Then the reverend took the stage. Charlotte felt him coming before she saw him, because the enthusiasm in the crowd gave way to pure hysterics, strangers holding each other for balance as they braid their delight into the skies. The arena had an aroma, as if the sweat from so many people had made a stew, and she was boiling in it. He was smaller than she expected, oddly like a white version of the black country preachers of her grandmother's day. Pike was round, soft, and goggle-eyed. He raised his arms like a conductor with a symphony. And the crowd abruptly went silent, except for a few muffled coughs. Charlotte had never seen anyone control a crowd with such ease. Arms still raised, he strutted the stage like a peacock. Was it a trick of the lighting, or did he have a golden aura? My children, he began almost a whisper. My children, welcome to the truth. Welcome to the way and the light. Leave everything else behind you. Behind you, everything else is dust. Everything else is noise. Everything else is a trap to keep you from the truth. He lowered his arms and the crowd erupted in cheers again. Shh, Charlotte found herself thinking. Let the man talk. One part of her knew she might have chuckled at his display only a moment before, but now she felt oddly protective. If the crowd had come to hear the man, couldn't they be quiet? Even as she wondered at her own reaction, she craved peace. She wanted to hear his voice again, part grandfather, part teacher, part lover, part what? Then the event began. That was what they called it in the coming days on all of the news outlets, and that seemed as good a name as any. Look out! Someone yelled from near the stage, barely caught on the microphone. A woman with bright red hair. Hadn't she just seen her driving the car earlier today? Charged the stage with the glittering knife a butcher would use, raised high. Nazi bastard, the woman yelled. The attendants near the reverend seemed frozen, giving her a path to him, and she slashed fiercely with her knife. Charlotte gasped, as if the blade had cut her too. Stop her, she screamed. 
From the stones in her chest, she could be watching a loved one being attacked. Stop! As the crowd shrieked with Charlotte, security woke from its slumber and tried to grab her. The woman climbed the rafters as if to reach the jumbotron, but she slipped on the metal and fell, tangling her in a rope from the Reverend Pike's truth tour banner. She fell, caught in rope, until her neck clearly snapped. She swung only five yards from the ground to and fro. The crowd closest to the stage surged up toward her. In an instant, Charlotte thought they meant to try to rescue her. Why? An angry voice in her head said. But then they pulled and clawed and gashed, and Charlotte realized they were tearing her open. The crowd of dozens scrubbing their faces with both hands, painting themselves with her blood. But Charlotte kept her eyes on the reverend. He was hunched over while attendants dabbed at his face with the cloth, but he was still on his feet. Thank goodness, he was all right. Thank goodness. The reverend surveyed the frenzy around the fallen woman and reached for his microphone. Calmly, oh so calmly, he spoke. Children, please return to your seats. As if snapped from a trance, the blood washers backed away. Some were doubled over in tears, led away from the red-smeared ruin by others who were stronger. Charlotte felt herself swoon, her mind racing with questions about what to do. The world, in that instant, felt hopeless, evil. Evil was everywhere. Pike seemed to speak directly to her. We have seen Satan try to slay your servant, but he did not succeed. He will not succeed. No, the crowd screamed. We have seen the power of the Dark One. He has ensnared our country. Yes, this time, was that her own voice Charlotte had heard raised with the crowd? He controls Washington. Yes, he has corrupted our children and brought the wrath of heaven down upon our once godly country. But we will take it back. If every one of you will remember what you have seen today, Remember her sacrifice. Turn to your neighbor. Those of you who can, share the blood. The rose near Charlotte, once emptied, had filled again as the mourners returned to their seats. The coppery scent, the blood scent, reminded her of something, something terrible. But when the woman in the nurse's uniform turned to her and wiped her warm, bloody hands on Charlotte's cheeks, Charlotte held onto her hands and wept. Share the blood, the reverend called again from the stage. Share the blood, the crowd chanted, syncopating with clapping as sharp as marching soldiers' feet. Share the blood. When the nurse let her go, Charlotte touched her cheek with her index finger, saw the bright blood, raised it to her nostril to smell it. The night seemed to sway, then dance. Her thoughts were mired in a fugue state. Look at the cameras, children, 
the Reverend said, pointing toward the banks of video cameras from the national news vans. Tomorrow, this will be shown all over the country, all over the world, and the world will know our truth. This is our moment. Take it. They cheered and swayed and held each other. When the bloody nurse clung to her in an embrace, Charlotte realized she was clinging to her as if she were drowning. Charlotte didn't remember calling for a car to get home, but somehow she ended up walking back through her own front door with shaking hands. Arthur wasn't home yet. She needed time away from him first, time to write. She'd been wasting her time writing about relationships. Relationships. She needed to write about the reverend instead. She should have been writing about the reverend all along. She needed to share with the world what she had seen. Miller. She needed to write a story for Miller. She wiped her hands clean on her clothes and started typing on her laptop. Tonight, in a display of pure... What, exactly? What was the word? She stared at the words on her screen, her eyes focusing on each one until they devolved to individual letters, held no purpose, no meaning. The word display especially troubled her. D-I-S-P-L-A-Y. It was useless. A display was something for show. A display was a kind of lie. Charlotte erased the word, but couldn't think of another. Couldn't think of how to begin. She was tired, that was all. Just tired. She had touched two strangers' blood today. Charlotte lost track of how long she stayed in the shower, too hot water rushing her as she tried to clear her head. Share the blood. The reverend's edict rang in her mind. She rubbed her face with water, imagining the way the reverend's followers had bathed in the blood of his sacrifice. When she came out of the bathroom in her towel, Arthur was waiting. He stood in the doorway in her path, his face drawn, eyes wide. Have you seen the news? Arthur said. She melted with shame inside for her lies. She wanted to tell him she had been there. She wanted nothing but truth in her life. Is the reverend all right? She said. All right, Arthur said incredulous. Then his face swelled with joy. All right, it was the best ever. Death came for him and he did not move. He held up his own blood to the people. He showed he was brave the way only the Lord is brave. He did so good, so good. So well, Charlotte thought somewhere dimly, and then the thought was gone. Arthur raved at her for at least 15 minutes without a pause, the way he often did when he talked about the reverend. But this time, instead of saying she'd heard enough or suggesting they go to bed, she sat and listened in her towel without getting dressed. She had witnessed it herself, but she reveled in Arthur's excitement. At last, they had something to talk about. When Arthur finally went to sleep, Charlotte went back to her laptop. She could not rest until she had written her story. This might be her most important story. 
Charlotte had fought writer's block in the past, but that night she had to fight for every word, as if she were in the haze of an opium den. She knew something was wrong, very wrong. But if she could just get the story finished. Her hands on the keyboard moved, as if they were animating themselves. This is about relationships. About a man and woman, yes. But about so much more. Good to evil, present to future, damnation to salvation, truth to lies. She passed out. She woke up to the sound of the kitchen television playing the news. Arthur had also turned on the radio, so the newscasters' voices dueled. A horrifying display, a savage attack. No place in American politics. Charlotte had a raging headache. Where had she left the Tylenol? Her headache only calmed when the newscaster stopped talking and they played excerpts from the reverend's speech when she could see him and hear his voice. We have seen Satan try to slay your servant, but he did not succeed. The newscasters said the reverend had received millions of dollars in donations that morning alone. The newscasters said the woman who attacked the reverend was a former follower, a woman named Linda Petit who was dying from cancer. Why hadn't she gone to the reverend for healing instead of trying to hurt him? The event described on the news, one of horrors, was nothing like she remembered. Hadn't anyone seen the hugging and swaying and joy? Charlotte brought her laptop to the kitchen table to read the story she'd written the night before with fresh eyes before she would send it to Miller. She saw, good to evil, present to future, damnation to salvation, truth to lies. But when she blinked, the words blurred, and she fixated on one. S-A-L-V-A-T-I-O-N. Her heart thudded. Arthur, Han, what's this word? Arthur glanced over where she was pointing. He stared blankly at the word and shrugged. Why do you use so many letters anyway? She shook her head, confused. She didn't know why. Couldn't remember why. Arthur pointed to another of the words. Eh, he said, this one. She sounded it out. T-R-U-T-H, truth. She knew that one. That's the one, Arthur said. That's the only one that matters. He was so right, and she'd been so wrong. She had wasted so many months when he tried to tell her, but she had been too blind. Tears dampened Charlotte's face where she had washed away the blood. Let's write your article together, Arthur said. Only the best words. Charlotte nodded as they wrote about the reverend and his truth and called out the lies on the news. Their fingers played together and roamed each other's skin. When he touched her, she felt her skin sing the way it used to in the beginning. God wants us to be joyful, Arthur said. They made love on the kitchen floor and it was the most joy she'd felt in years.
This story was absolutely chilling to me and so well crafted. From the dementia angle to the encounter with Pauly and the way he was killed, to the bloody service with the Reverend, and then to that gut-wrenching end, I was enthralled every step of the way. This one's just a fascinating exploration of the tensions that many people face today, told through an exaggerated lens, but still Mm -hmm. deeply resonant. The line, it was the most joy she'd felt in years at the very end, um, that was especially unsettling Mm -hmm. to me. Oh, yeah. It just it speaks so much the idea that when you have a demagogue to follow and you to tell you how to think and feel and believe there's a perverse sense of freedom in that and the the burden is off of you essentially but so much is lost in that abdication as well oh that is such a super great observation well done you <laughs> <laughs> also fun fact about the writers Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve do are married and a real life power couple Not only do they have their respective writing careers when they aren't collaborating, they also host their own podcast on the Realm Network. Life writing, right for your life. So if the craft and business of writing intrigues you, you'll love this show. Steve and Tanana Reeve are wonderful to listen to. They've been around, they know what they're talking about, and they have amazing guests. Their show is first rate. Check it out. Our next story is one of the works of flash fiction Realm commissioned in 2020 in the early months of the COVID pandemic. In a city under lockdown, a teenage girl goes out for groceries, but the errand isn't as simple as it sounds. This is Milk Run, written by Alex Beckett and voiced by Natalie Nautis. On the glorious day after her brother finally gets stuck at his girlfriend's past curfew, it takes all of Carmi's powers of persuasion to get Mama to let her do the grocery run. Gray's 20 and taking microbiology at U of T. Mama apparently thinks his knowing about viruses confers partial immunity. That and the almighty Y chromosome. But it's send Carmi now or do without until Sunday. So... Don't talk to anyone. Don't sass any cops. Don't stop to watch birds. No crowded lineups. Watch for yellow jackets. Cook your hands. Yes, yes. Nod, nod. Carmi zips her parka and kisses her mother. I'll be careful. Promise. Then drives their mule out to the building lobby. Favors queue up on its touchscreen. Pick up for Antonia Coretti on the 14th floor. Check the art store for Zeno, the building super. She's lacing up her boots in the lobby when a cough from the stairwell makes her jump. Whirling, she sees a hollow-eyed white boy clutching a top-line carrier pigeon. Leo something. Mama emphatically dislikes him. Going out? His voice is raspy. Obviously. I need something. Meds. Which drugstore you ping? Not that kind of meds. Carmi lets out a bark of laughter. Forget it. I've only got a day's supply left. The snow, does Gray do this for you? It's a dumb question. Of course, he nods. My mother will kill me three shades of dead if I'm caught buying drugs. I've been using pitch to fill up your bird feeders. Ask your brother. Leo hefts the drone. Just drop it in the trash behind the mini-mart. She puts her fists on her hips. Can't you fly it there yourself? He looks surprised. Jamming barriers? She feels her face warm with embarrassment, like she asked him whether the sky's up or down. Downtown Toronto is filled with viable targets. 
hospitals and courthouses, art galleries and the two city halls, new and old, not to mention the U.S. consulate. The patchwork of defensive no-fly zones is always shifting, a police-made obstacle course. Come on, Leo pleads. Get it to the convenience store so my friend, your supplier, can pilot Pidge from there, then carry it back in. Shouldn't you just get treatment? Your mom's got her vapes, right? You're fetching vodka for Tonya. How is this different? He picks his way across to her, closest anyone's been in a month. Carmi stands her ground. She could knock him over with a feather, sweaty noodle that he is. When he sets the pigeon across the rim of her mule, she doesn't argue. If he goes out like that, all feverish and shaky, the yellow jackets are sure to pound him flat and spray virus down his throat. Thanks, Leo says, vanishing up the stairwell. She takes a picture of the drone with her hand in the shot, giving it the finger, and texts it to her brother. All day yesterday, while she was logged onto school, thick snowflakes blocked the view out her window, muffling a city gone artificially quiet. Now, stepping outside, she finds the world fully blanketed. Nobody's been out salting or clearing sidewalks. Carmi makes the first visible track in the whole street. The omnipresent sparrows fill the streets with argument. The air has a mellow, post-blizzard chill, like a baby who's cried itself out. The sun is bright and amplified by the ground cover. Carmi breathes like it's the first time. Her mule beeps a protest. Its battery isn't up to playing snowplow, so Carmi pops a handle. After weeks spent exercising on a throw rug, she welcomes the challenge of pulling it. Off to the LCBO where she cooks her hands, holding them in in the UV light lock for 90 seconds, then switching to fresh gloves as a masked clerk checks the barcodes on Antonia's order. Carmi settles the vodka into the mule, liquid in glass, heavy. Once she's too far away to summon home, she sends Mama a text, saying the snow's gonna slow her down. Happy, towing her load, she rounds the massive slab of a new-built condo in progress on the corner of Queen. She pauses at the burned-out mini-mart in its shadow, emblazoned with yellow jacket slogans. It's the usual racist bullshit and price-gouging accusations. Heart in her throat, feeling like a criminal, she carries Leo's pigeon into the alley. Rustling noise. Is she caught? No. It's just rats, sleek and dark-furred, leaping in and out of frozen trash bags. Life going about its business, mesmerizing. She'd capture video if not for Leo's drug deal. Instead, she perches the carrier pigeon on a dumpster. Stepping out, sweating, she imagines being surrounded. Police, freeze. Reclaiming her mule, she drags off to see if the art store is open. Zeno wants watercolors. And then to the main event. Another ritual baking of her hands. Another exchange of codes. The grocery bots proffer sealed containers filled with eggs, dairy, vegetables. Mama makes soup in batches for five families in the building. It's why she gets an extra errand pass. The mule is heavy now, but Carmi doesn't want to go back. She chews her lip for a second, watching a cardinal bounce back and forth between birch trees, and gives in to temptation, putting in her order for birdseed. 
Mama rings the second she turns off Wellington. Where are you? I already said, mules slowing me down. Did you go to the bulk store? I'm heading back now. Home in 30, Carmi, or you are never leaving the house again. Carmi doesn't point out that she's 16, or that the annual round of government-mandated isolation is ending in 10 more days. In the quiet, it's easy to believe life will be this. Forever. Stopped world, everyone frozen in place. Treasuring every reprieve while weighing every sweaty acquaintance and uniformed stranger, guessing if they're enemies or allies. The birdseed pickup has taken her to the edge of Lake Ontario, where ice pack undulates like muscle, flexing under white skin. Blue-black water flashes between plates of ice. Someone's out there. The barge is stacked high with speakers playing drum solos, the duo dancing atop this floating pile of tech is clad in something puffy and gray, as if they've pulled clouds around their bodies. They're singing in a language she doesn't recognize. Indigenous, then. It fits with the style of dance. Lightning effects flash within the protesters' cloud costumes. Carmi turns, examining the waterfront condos. In every window, on every deck, families under glass take in the show. On the shore, she spots yellow jackets. The vigilantes are hidden from the apartment dwellers, tucked behind a blacked-out bus shelter. Clad in mustard vests with barcodes proclaiming their immunity, they expose themselves to each new bug on purpose. They're staking out the boat dock, waiting for the protesters. Swallowing, Carmi posts a photo, hashtagging it, hashtag 911. Are you nuts? Leo pings. Get out of there. Since when are you in my follows? They've been going after anyone who reports them. You know the cops don't give. That's not true. But she turns from the view of the barge. The mule feels legit heavy now. She'd meant to thoroughly enjoy being out. First time in three weeks, and he's spoiling her walk, damn it. She won't retrieve his pigeon. She won't. Let him walk out and fetch it himself. It's only a block. She's almost to the mini-mart. Damn it. She parks the mule, takes a quick scan of the street. Two pedestrians, also hauling mules. Stomping back into the alley, she's relieved to see a single line of tracks. Her own, from earlier. Giddy on adrenaline, sure someone's gonna jump out at her. No drone. Leo, where's your stuff? Never mind that, Leo says, just come back. She sees it, descending from roof level with a sealed pouch clutched to its battery case. Carmi lunges to catch the pigeon, slip sliding, almost doing a face plant into the sack of rats who scatter, eyes glinting. Spinning as she grabs it, she nearly goes down again. Stop, breathe, walk slow, walk slow. She emerges onto Queen Street. There's a guy coming, only half a block back. His coat gapes and she maybe sees or maybe imagines a yellow vest. Carmi slaps the drone onto a stack of leeks, wads her scarf over it, and gets the mule moving with a yank, putting her back into it as she stomps, stomps, stomps to the corner. Just leave him behind. If he runs, and she stomps headlong into the red spatter of ambulance and disease control flashers. 
gathered cops. Carmi doesn't let herself pause. First responders all have cameras these days. She doesn't attract nearly the attention her brother gets from authorities, but never give them reason to be suspicious. And the steps crunching behind her are getting closer. She's so stressed, she thinks she might go blind as she walks to the checkpoint. They're taking someone out of, it's the building next door to hers. Not Leo then. Not Antonia or Zeno. Not Mama, spiking a sudden fever. Guilty feels of relief roar through her. She opens the mule touchscreen to bring up barcodes for the cops, showing her errand pass to them, showing completed transactions, showing she belongs here. Go on through, the constable says, her hands practically brushing the drone under Carmi's scarf, but she's focused on the containment stretcher coming out of the building. Stay on the north side of the street until you're past the ambulance. Shower as soon as you're home. Carmi nods. Her eyes feel big as the car tires. The constable spares her a smile as she lifts the police tape. Don't worry, miss. You're safe. Everything's under control. Thank you, Carmi says. She ducks under the tape, kicking up a last spray of snow and hauls her mule past the police line. Without looking back, she makes for her building, returning to her mother and neighbors and the boy next door to their small economy of favors. She lets herself take a last deep whiff of outside, raising her face to the bite of the breeze as she cooks her hands one last time at the front door of her building. Waiting out the ultraviolet timer, Carmi listens to the sound of water melting to a trickle as the sun shines down, bright and untouchable, on the track-crossed, ever-changing quilt of late winter snow. One of the things I love about flash fiction is how it drops you right into a situation without explanation and forces you to pay super close attention if you're to understand the context in which the story is unfolding. Yeah, it's almost like you're catching up to Carmi on her errands. Alex Beckett seamlessly weaves in details about the world without deviating from the main character's story. It's subtle and expertly done. It's feat of world building. I agree completely. And one of the amazing things about these pandemic-themed stories is knowing that they were written during a time when lockdown protocols were still being developed and no one could be sure how stringent they needed to be or how long they'd have to last. But extrapolating off of moments in time from real life is one of the things that science fiction does best, as far as I'm concerned. And it's eerie sometimes to see the degree to which fictional scenarios play out in real life and in real time. Oh, my God. It really brought me back to those early terrifying days in 2020, just like you said, you know, we weren't sure how this was going to play out. And going to run an errand was this brief moment of freedom from lockdown, but also a risk and something scary, too. I mean, I wiped down so many groceries. <laughs> I can totally sympathize with you, man. That was that, that was a tough time. And, and, you know, it's not entirely over, is it? Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for being part of the fun. I'm always here for fun. And if you like stories to keep you up at night, show your support with a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. And be here for our next episode when we'll bring you a tale of African futurism set on Mars. Until then, pleasant nightmares. You're listening to Stories to Keep You Up at Night, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. 
Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Stories to Keep You Up at Night, Episode 69, features Fugue State by Stephen M. Barnes and Tanana Reeve and Milk Run by A. M. Delamonica. It is produced by Marco Palmieri and Mary Osadolahi, associate produced by Alexis Latshaw, and executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and Nicole Otto. Performed by Shayna Smalls and Natalie Nottis. Audio produced by Tidef Studios and Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Angela Yee. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Stories to Keep You Up at Night by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.